Hello and welcome. I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and the Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. The Centre's premises and the University of Sydney stand on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people, part of the Eora Nation, and we acknowledge Elders past, present and emerging. Let me also acknowledge uh, the many members of the Diplomatic Corps and members of Parliament, the Armed Forces, uh, the distinguished uh, guests that are with us for this very special event. Uh, today's virtual event is a special 90-minute event um, and where for the first hour we have the enormous privilege uh, of being joined by two former Australian Prime Ministers, Mr John Howard and Ms Julia Gillard, and they'll be joined in conversation by Mr Dennis Richardson. But between 6 and 6.30pm uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time, we're honoured to have contributions from the Prime Minister, the Honourable Scott Morrison, uh, the Premier of New South Wales, the Honourable Gladys Berejiklian, the Leader of the Opposition, uh, the Honourable Mr Anthony Albanese, and the Chairman of the American Australia Association, Mr John Olson. There's a very special surprise in store after those contributions, and so I really do urge you uh, to stick around, uh, stay online with us for the entire 90 minutes. And between that surprise and our distinguished speakers, this is truly one of the more remarkable events we've had the privilege of bringing you here from the United States Study Center. So it's the 1st of September, uh, 2021, and 70 years ago today in San Francisco, the ANZUS Treaty was signed. Now, ANZUS binds Australia and the United States as allies, and of course has been a cornerstone of Australian national security ever since. But just as important, at age 70, ANZUS is now seen as a key institution, part of a broad and deep alliance relationship between the two countries. That evolution in the Australia-US alliance, that broadening, that deepening is no accident. It follows changing geostrategic circumstances. Uh, and it is also a function of the responsive acts of initiative from both Australian and American leaders and quite creative exercises of strategic imagination by Australian political leaders, policymakers and diplomats, Mr. Howard, Ms. Gillard and Mr. Richardson prominent among them. At this point in Australia's national development, at uh, this moment in our national history, we at the US Study Centre, we're using the occasion of the 70th anniversary of ANZUS to draw attention not just to the history of the Alliance, but to talk about how it remains central uh, to Australia's national interests today. Um, to that end, the United States Study Center uh, is today. Uh, this is the first move in what is going to be a, an ongoing project for us, our so-called Alliance at 70 project. Uh, the centerpiece of which is a 220-page lavishly produced book to which Mr. Howard, uh, Ms. Gillard, uh, Mr. Richardson um, have contributed. Um, uh, President George W. Bush uh, contributing from the American side will have more to show you about the book uh, later on, but an enormously exciting initiative uh, for us here at the US Study Center. And why? Because it's not just the history of the Alliance that matters, it's how we are today building on that history to position Australia for the, for the, for the serious challenges that lie ahead of us. The point of celebrating the 70 years of the Alliance is not, as Dennis Richardson once told me, to mire the Alliance in sentimentality or nostalgia, but to show how those deep channels of trust, 
and cooperation that have been fostered over those 70 years position Australia so strongly for the challenges that lie ahead of us. Quite frankly, it's my view at least that our alliance with the United States is perhaps Australia's single most important strategic asset as we face the challenges ahead. Um, I'd really, I'm gonna hand over to Dennis Richardson uh, now to lead us uh, with a conversation uh, with um, Prime Ministers Howard and Prime Ministers Gillard. Of course, Prime Minister Howard joining us from his residence here in Sydney, Australia's 25th Prime Minister, uh, serving as Prime Minister of Australia from 1996 to 2007. Of course, a long career in the Australian Parliament prior to becoming Prime Minister in 1996. And Ms Gillard, Australia's 27th Prime Minister, uh, serving in that role from 2010 to 2013. Between them, our, our two distinguished guests are 14 years uh, in the biggest seat uh, in Australian politics and Australian national leadership. We're enormously honoured to have their expertise with us. And between them both presiding over incredibly important moments of that alliance evolution I referred to. Dennis Richardson, one of Australia's most distinguished and longest serving Australia, uh, civil servants, but in that career occupying key roles with carriage of Australia's relationship with the United States, uh, ambassador to the United States, director general of ASIO, director, a uh, secretary rather of DFAT and, and his last big role in government, secretary of the Australian Department of Defense. And of course, a board member at one point of the United States Study Center. We are so excited to have you all with us. Uh, Dennis, um, over to you. Dennis, you're on mute. Yes. There you go. Sorry. Uh, th uh, thank you, Simon. Uh, look, I, I will be very, very brief. Um, uh, I've essentially been a bag carrier uh, all my life. Uh, the Prime Minister Howard and Prime Minister Gillard have been central to the alliance. Prime Minister Howard's decision following 9-11 to... Uh, to uh, enact for the first time ANZUS. Prime Minister Gillard's decision in 2011 uh, to invite uh, US Marines to rotate through Australia and also to give further access uh, to the US Air Force. Very, very important decision strategically. And 10 years later, uh, that's a decision that looks very far-sighted. So I think I'd like to, uh, I think we should open up by just asking a very open-ended question uh, to both Prime Minister Howard and to Prime Minister Gillard. 70 years down the track from 1951, how do you both reflect on the alliance? Well, Dennis, um, ladies and gentlemen, can I just start by complimenting the study centre, you, Simon, and Mark Bailey on organising uh, this uh, wonderful webinar. Uh, I was 12 years of age when the ANZUS Pact was signed in 1951, and I, I remember it. Um, I was starting to follow politics fairly closely at that stage. And one of the first things to say is that most of the photographs you now see at that signing ceremony in San Francisco feature John Foster Dulles as the principal American participant. He wasn't, in fact, Secretary of State then. The Secretary of State was Dean Acheson, who was a member of the Truman administration. And that 
is very significant because one of the features of the Australian-American alliance is that it has consistently, not always, crossed party lines. Uh, through, uh, when the ANZUS Treaty was signed, the Menzies government was in power, and it's fair to say that Percy Spender, who was then the Minister for External Affairs, as it was then called, uh, was a driving force in um, uh, achieving this very important partnership. But through, of course, uh, the 50s and 60s, under 1972, you had coalition governments, and during some of the most difficult phases for the alliance, uh, you had this cross between a nominally centre-right administration and nominally centre-left. I think it's an important feature because I often said that the relationship between our two countries transcends personalities. It doesn't really matter who is in the lodge or in the White House. There's a special bond. I thought at the time, and and my view hasn't really altered, uh, that it seemed the most natural thing in the world. In the early 1950s, uh, of course, that was less than 10 years after the end of World War II, uh, and, and the sense of gratitude of the United States for her major role in the defence of Australia uh, was still very strong with the Australian people. And it was only, what, less than two years after the communist takeover in Beijing, Ma Tung had come to power, we had been fighting alongside each other in Korea. We entered the Korean War along with the British and, 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 and others, beside the Americans under the United Nations flag uh, in, in 1950. So it seemed the most natural thing in the world, and it did provide uh, a sense of, of stability and security. And although it's gone through uh, some difficulties, particularly in the 1980s, when New Zealand's position, because of her uh, very hostile attitude to anything remotely connected with nuclear power, uh, sort of in a, in a sense was suspended, although uh, there were strenuous efforts made by President Clinton later on to sort of bring them back into the fold. And, and New Zealand proved a, a wonderful partner for Australia in places like East Timor and did provide forces in Afghanistan and even a small number of engineers in a non-combatant role I think, in Iraq. So it's had a few rumbles, but it was the most natural thing in the world. Uh, And, of course, I can't conclude some introductory remarks about it without reflecting on what happened 20 years ago next week uh, in Washington when I was present when that terrible attack occurred. And it drove home to me that even a nation as powerful as the United States can feel vulnerable And the Americans did feel vulnerable in September 2001. They were shocked by the lethal audacity, if I can put it that way, of the terrorist attack. And they valued uh, the willingness of Australia to say from the beginning, we were not going to be an 80% ally, we're going to be a 100% ally. And of course, others, you know, let's not forget the enormous contribution that was made in Afghanistan by uh, the British under, under Tony Blair as Prime Minister. Uh, once again, an example where, when it comes to certain international issues, perceived political differences in domestic policy are transcended uh, by uh, leaders who see a common threat. I haven't altered my view. Uh, the alliance is important more than any other association of a 
strategic kind that we have because it's based on hard-headed realism. We need the United States presence in our part of the world. And in saying that, I'm not only speaking, uh, I hope, still on behalf of the great majority of the Australian people, but also speaking for leaders of other countries who value the presence of the United States. So um, I look back on that 70-year period and uh, I recall some of the ups and downs, but more the positives. Of course, the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been difficult. And, of course, there is criticism uh, of what was done by the American administration, but I'll leave that for those who now hold office to deal with because it is to them to speak on behalf of our country. But I I have to say this, that the... The willingness of the United States uh, through all those years to send her men and women uh, to fight for other countries is something that you have to admire and express gratitude for. There's nothing wrong with the good heart uh, of middle America when it comes to uh, sticking up for the freedoms of the world and the values that bind Australia and the United States together more tightly than anything else. Uh, Prime Minister Gillard, if I can ask, you're from a very different generation to that of Prime Minister Howard. Um, What Prime Minister Howard talks about in terms of personal experience, to you, it is something you would have read about. I'm I'm interested uh, in terms of your own reflections and what influences there were in your younger years in respect to the Alliance. Sure, thank you very much, Dennis. And can I firstly join with uh, Prime Minister Howard in congratulating the USSC for uh, this event and for everything that it is going to do to uh, talk about the Alliance past and future at this milestone anniversary moment. Uh, Yes, I am a little bit younger than John, that's true. Uh, and as a, a result, uh, <laughs> uh, as a result, uh, you know, the politics of my young youth uh, was the politics of Vietnam. Uh, I was, um, you know, a, a late primary school student uh, when uh, Gough Whitlam came to power and obviously the uh, years uh, in the lead up to uh, Whitlam coming to power had turned around Vietnam. And even when I moved into the student movement uh, all those years later, I first became involved in the student movement in 1980, uh, the memories of the youth mobilisation around Vietnam were the sort of dominant narrative of the student movement. So, yes, it's true to say that I cut my political teeth in an environment where there was a great deal of scepticism about uh, the United States, the alliance, because it was reflective of the fault lines in Australian society and indeed in the US itself as to whether or not uh, the US should afford in Vietnam and the impact of conscription on younger people. Um, As I moved from that period into uh, more and more active Labor Party politics and ultimately into Parliament itself, uh, the more I study, the more I learned, uh, the more I would come to echo John's words that this uh, is a natural fit for Australia, a vital and a natural fit. 
And whilst that doesn't mean that there are no moments of trouble in the alliance, no differences of views either between us and the United States or within our countries between segments of the population about what to do next, uh, that this, this is a vital and enduring friendship for Australia and how we conceive of ourselves as a nation in our region of the world and more generally. I mean, I had the very uh, special uh, privilege when I was Prime Minister of uh, being in Washington and uh, celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Alliance. And the two memories that stay with me very strongly from then, I have a range of them, uh, but one memory is uh, John McCain uh, taking me to his private office and showing me uh, the photographs on his wall and also on his wall he had a framed letter uh, when he was a prisoner of war, an offer was made uh, by uh, his captors uh, to release him as an act of deference to his father, who was, of course, uh, very senior in the US military. And his father wrote and rejected that offer uh, because uh, he couldn't be seen to have an act of favouritism for his son. And I think that is a reminder that the alliance stands in war and peace. And when we talk about war, we're talking about human sacrifice in a very visceral sense, uh, the loss of life, uh, the, the wounds that come, uh, and experiences like John McCain's, who was imprisoned for years and regularly tortured. And the other moment that stays with me is visiting with President Obama. We went to a school. Uh, and in line with presidential security arrangements, no one ever tells anybody that the president's coming. And so there was a motor mechanics class uh, of predominantly African-American young men that had been hustled out of the way and put in a room to watch a video rather than having their motor mechanics class. So the prime, uh, so I and the president could walk into the building that way. And as we exited, a staff member informed President Obama of this and he unannounced walked into this room of African-American young men. And as you would imagine, they just went completely mad. And I'll never forget the wonder on their face uh, that President Obama was there in front of them. And that reinforced in me that this is an alliance of shared values and hope for the future. I think one thing that always binds us is that we are nations who truly believe that by human action, we can create a better future for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. So sacrifice and hope in equal measure, I think, are the, the fuel of the alliance. And I hope that we can discuss that today and that they are big themes uh, for what the centre does in the months ahead. Um, I'm re really intrigued with this because of the Prime Ministers with whom I carried bags for, I found both Prime Minister Howard and Prime Minister Gillard, in my own personal view, to be the closest in temperament and approach when it came to big foreign policy issues. And it's always intrigued me because very different generations, very different sides of the political fence. In fact, uh, I suspect there'd be very little beyond national security that you might agree on, uh, which is perfectly reasonable. And uh, I'm, I'm just intrigued, where along the road, where along your journey, 
did, did you both start to seriously think about Australia and the world? Because if I go back to both of your maiden speeches to Parliament, there's very little about Australia and the world. Both of you became Prime Ministers uh, without, uh, without foreign policy being a big thing. Prime Minister Howard did talk about in the 96 election giving more emphasis to the traditional partners, but I always thought that was more politics than policy. Uh, Prime Minister Gillard got into strife wrongly, in my view, in Brussels in 2010 for daring to say that her first love was education, not foreign policy. So where along that road did or was it when you became Prime Minister? You're two people who have sat in that chair. No one else but Prime Ministers sit in that chair. And to what extent did the weight of the office uh, have a bearing on your view of Australia and the world? And Prime Minister Gillard, you perhaps might kick off uh, with the answer to that first. Uh, thanks, Dennis. And I suspect from time to time I subjected you to the indignity of holding a handbag. So my uh, apologies for that. John would not have done that to you. Um, uh, look, my, uh, you know, my early experiences uh, in the student movement, uh, in many ways, we were trying to downplay foreign policy. Uh, the student movement had all, almost destroyed itself uh, over divisions about uh, Israel and uh, Palestine. And we uh, deliberately uh, said, you know, if we are going to survive as a student movement, we've got to knuckle down and talk about the things and do the things that students want their student union to do. So it's got to be about education quality and student allowances and student housing and student welfare and those sorts of things. That doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, any politics in the student movement. Internationally, the student movement was divided in a Cold War sense between the international organisation that the Soviet Union supported and the international organisation that the US supported. Uh, and, you know, we tried to, to find some space in the middle uh, by having a Commonwealth uh, Students Association and uh, bringing uh, people together around that. Uh, but, you know, even with those experiences, it's absolutely true to say I didn't come to politics as a foreign policy aficionado. So I learned on the job. And one of the great things about uh, the Australian Parliament, and long may it be like this, is that we do offer young parliamentarians experiences in the world. And I do want to reinforce this because I think it's easy for the public uh, to sort of sniff at um, oh, you know, they're off on another junket, they're off overseas. Uh, this is the wrong outlook. It is incredibly important for young parliamentarians to travel. I did that. I went to the US for an extended period, one of the studies uh, that they offer young parliamentarians. I went to China leading a parliamentary delegation. I went to other places in the world. And that helps turn your book learning uh, which, of course, I was doing into a more contemporary and nuanced understanding. And then as you work your way up the political hierarchy, uh, the more exposed you are to these issues, the more thoughtful you've got to be about them. But, of course, all of that 
um, helps you get ready, but there's still that moment when you are sworn in uh, and the weight comes on your shoulders and no one, I think, can um, understand or describe that moment except someone who's lived through it. You've had some ability to brace for the weight, but you've got to learn to carry the weight. Uh, and that, for me, was about seeking out good counsel, being open to ideas, being as thoughtful and measured as possible uh, to try and get judgment calls right. And uh, ultimately, then you've just got to live with the judgment calls you've made and uh, leave it to the historians to puzzle through whether you got them right or wrong. And Prime Minister Howard? Um, Dennis, um, let me tell you a well-kept secret. Um, that is that when I was chosen as the Liberal candidate for Benelong in 1973 and uh, subsequently elected to Parliament in May of 1974, my principal interest was foreign affairs and defence. And I can remember making comments to the media after I was pre-selected on you know, debating the recognition of, of, of uh, the, what we call, we still call Red China and uh, and and. and, and because this wasn't long after um, the, the Whitlam visit uh, breakthrough and, of course, the, the famous Nixon goes to China initiative. But it, it so conspired that when I became a minister at the beginning of the Fraser government's time in office, the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, was very, very generous to me and, and made me a, a, a junior minister for business and consumer affairs and it began a long involvement with economic portfolios. And just three years later, in rather unexpected circumstances, I became treasurer and I remained in that position. So it really wasn't until um, I got into opposition in 1983 that I was able as deputy leader to start talking a little bit about foreign affairs. And I had to be a bit careful because my leader at the time was a former foreign minister, Andrew Peacock, he knew a lot more about foreign affairs than I did. And, but, so I started off um, having this great interest, but uh, I wasn't frustrated because I didn't object to the responsibilities that I'd been given. But I share Julie's view that until you actually uh, get there, uh, the full weight of it doesn't strike you. I, in that context, I've never forgotten um, a night in... It was in 1999. It was on the eve of our deployment uh, to East Timor. And I can recall Jeanette and I went to Townsville uh, to um, see off some of the troops. We had uh, a meal with some of them uh, in, in, in the mess and chatted to them. And uh, they were to leave early the following morning. And I can recall walking out in that very warm Townsville evening, most of them are very warm in Townsville, and walking past this group of NCOs talking to their men and thinking to myself, gee, what's going to happen to these fellows? And because at that time, um, you, we didn't know. This was the first military deployment that could expose our troops to fire uh, since, uh, I think, Vietnam. I mean, we've been part of some peacekeeping operations where it wasn't believed that hostilities were going to take place. And I thought, you know, I remember thinking to myself, gee, what have I done? And, uh, and I kept that, obviously, to myself because I didn't really have any doubts 
It was the right thing. But until that actually happens, and in the end, um, uh, the, uh, to use Harry Truman's expression, the buck does stop with you, uh, the Prime Minister. He goes, it's all very well. You go around the Cabinet and they all say yes, but at the end of the day you say, no, I've changed my mind. We're not going to dispatch our troops. You don't dispatch those troops. That's just the reality of how um, uh, a cabinet system works on issues like that. So, uh, and I, I went through from '96 until the end of '99, and apart from the dispatch of some special forces to the Middle East at the request of President Clinton to reinforce the weapons inspection program in Iraq, and they were never used, they were brought back because. There was an arrangement reached for the weapons inspectors to go into Iraq. Apart from that, <clears throat> hadn't had any major issues that involved the deployment of our troops. But then they happened sort of almost one after the other. From then on, we had the uh, deployment. And the East Timor uh, deployment uh, worked very, very well, uh, thanks overwhelmingly to the wonderful military leadership of Peter Cosgrove. Uh, who it turned out to be an absolutely outstanding military leader and somebody who the Australian public has greatly admired as a result of that. And it was um, that experience that I've never forgotten. Now, obviously, I had some very uh, restless moments uh, in Afghanistan and particularly Iraq. They were different because uh, one of them was not contested domestically. There was overwhelming support in Australia for our deployment in Afghanistan. There was very vigorous opposition to our deployment in Iraq. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't uh, um, retract in any way my decision on Iraq, but I have to acknowledge intellectually that it was very different from Afghanistan. And that sort of adds to uh, the, the weight of the decision that is taken. Now, why did I sort of have the attitudes I did? Uh, I think I, I grew up in an environment where we saw um, the, the beneficial consequences of our alliances with what Robert Menzies called our great and powerful friends. Uh, and uh, it was a very, I can use that expression again, a natural thing in the world to identify with the cause uh, of uh, anti-communism as uh, led by uh, by the United States, but they weren't the only country that was anti-communist. Uh, I, I saw the extraordinary benefits uh, of uh, American military power as far as Australia was concerned. I understood the importance of fighting in Korea. I thought the it was an open and shut case. Of, it was an invading army that rolled across the border. And in that sense, it was different from the conflict uh, in Vietnam, although I, I supported the decision and argued for it in many forums, but it was a different, had a different history and a bit different background. Um, I never <clears throat> um, doubted the um, validity, if I can put it that way, the wisdom of the alliance between Australia and the United States. I don't think anybody who studies the history of the world and the ideological conflicts that uh, surrounded the Cold War could do otherwise than believe in that alliance. And in the end, of course, more than anything, the uh, uh, Soviet Union collapsed and world communism collapsed because uh, 
uh, it decayed from within and part of that decay was caused by its inability to counteract the military and economic power of the United States. So um, I, I found myself comfortable uh, with the character of the alliance. I doesn't mean that I haven't been critical uh, about some aspects of it and, and uh, probably will be in the future, but the fundamental merit of it as far as Australia's security position is concerned uh, it can't seriously be disputed. And the fundamental goodwill uh, of um, uh, Americans towards Australia uh, shouldn't be disputed. And I found that across the political divide, I found it from President Clinton. President Clinton and I, although we came from different ends of the political spectrum, he was very much a Democrat centrist when it comes to foreign policy. There weren't any real differences. And, of course, I made no secret of the very close friendship I developed with George Bush. But I found Bill Clinton uh, understanding and comprehending uh, of the alliance. And he, initially, when we were talking about East Timor, um, he said, John, I can't provide you with any ground forces. You've got to understand how hollowed out our military is. We took the, the peace dividend. And and uh, uh, there, yeah, whether that was a you know, totally uh, prime minister, could I just ask on that? Did it surprise you how hard you had to work to get uh, U.S. involvement in East Timor? I think Dennis, there were two stages to it. The first stage was yes, I was quite disappointed. I remember when I when I rang him and asked him whether they would be willing to provide any ground forces, and he explained to me why. He wouldn't. Uh, I was quite disappointed. I think I probably said in the conversation, well, gee, you know, we've sort of been there for you. And, and uh, uh, but he, and then not long after that, Alexander Downer did an interview on CNN in which he was very critical of the American refusal. And uh, Madeleine Albright rang Alexander W, Alexander's opposite number in the Clinton administration and said, uh, you know, that was pretty tough, Alexander. And he said, well, why? I meant it. And uh, so I think they must have, Madeleine Albright and Bill Clinton must have put their heads together and they decided that uh, they probably let us down. And from then on, he, short of reversing his refusal to provide any ground force, they worked very hard to help us. And in the end, they provided logistical help, intelligence upgrades. And then on top of that, the American Defence Secretary, um, Bill William, um, I think I think it was Cohen at the time, and he was a Republican, went to um, Jakarta uh, to sort of say, now, you know, we, this interfet mission is very important to us, and we hope you understand that. And the import in that uh, presentation was very deliberate. And I can recall fortuitously a meeting of APEC in uh, New Zealand uh, right on the eve of the decision of the Indonesians to accept Interfet. And Clinton was there and we had a long discussion and he uh, laid out to me what they were going to do. So I think it's fair to say that, yes, I was taken aback initially and disappointed, and that showed. And it showed with Alexander Downer. But what I, I do accept and I, and, and I respect that, that the Clinton administration worked that out and they did their level best short of reversing the original decision about ground force, and they did their level best. And, of course, as it turned out, 
that the assistance that they provided was was extremely valuable, and uh, and of course the operation turned out to be hugely successful, and one that uh, you know I remain very grateful to many countries in our own region because what's got to be remembered about Interfet was that we were able to assemble um, troops from led by Australia, from New Zealand, uh, from Thailand, from Korea. Uh, and 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 the like, and and I think we also had uh, a detachment of Gurkhas, and and so when you added it all up, it was very much, uh, it wasn't a, a white nations force, uh, as some critics of it, not in Australia, I don't think, but elsewhere said. I think that was one of the criticisms that Dr. Mahathir made uh, of it uh, at one stage, but it was very much an international regional force, and and it. it, it I think, displayed Australian leadership in a very good light. Okay. Uh, Prime Minister Gillard, um, you, you led a government that did not have a majority in the parliament. Uh, you relied on uh, independent and uh, green support. Despite that precarious situation, you took quite a number of, I think, what can only be considered uh, very important and in the circumstances, in the best sense of the word, courageous decisions, um, and not in a public service sense, but genuinely courageous. And one of them was the decision to invite US Marines to rotate through Northern Australia, to invite the US Air Force uh, to have greater access to Australia, As I said earlier, 10 years down the track, that decision has turned out to be really important in the context of the alliance. I'd be interested in your own thinking uh, in that decision and to the extent to which uh, you needed to, without giving away secrets, engage in some politicking on your own side of politics to get to that point. It was uh, an important decision and loomed in my mind at the time as a very important decision, though I uh, agree with you, the remove of years is helping us see it in a clearer and clearer light. Uh, Dennis, you would uh, recall that uh, a foreign policy uh, thread uh, of the government I led was uh, analysing Australia's role in what we termed the Asian century and trying to come to grips with the changing geopolitics of our region in every sense, Uh, what it meant, you know, people to people, education, economic, but also what it meant in terms of foreign and security policy and uh, the future of uh, military, uh, uh, military matters in our region. While we were doing that, uh, President Obama uh, was uh, contemplating and ultimately announced the pivot to Asia. And, of course, there was a lively dialogue back and forth between Australia and the US on these questions at all points. And it seemed to me that in that context, for us to take a step forward in the alliance, uh, to enable there to be Marines and other Uh, military engagement uh, on Australian soil uh, was an important step forward and would stand us in good stead uh, in what was going to be 
uh, an uncertain and potentially difficult future. And so against that backdrop, I became persuaded uh, that the decision was right. And if we were going to do it, we should do it in a meaningful way. Uh, you would recall, Dennis, that there was floating around at the time some ideas about kind of tiny little pilots of this, that or the other thing. Uh, and I rejected that and said, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Let's announce it. Let's uh, move it. Uh, and so that's what we did. Uh, coming from um, my background, particularly the student political background, uh, I obviously uh, did uh, worry uh, that this would be tremendously controversial in the Australian community or at least sections of it. Uh, many uh, people had, uh, you know, grown, grown up talking about uh, US bases on Australian soil. You would remember all of that around Pine Gap and uh, mm. protests around those things and a very lively debate about what this meant for our sovereignty uh, and all the rest of it. And I obviously feared that there would be a major threat of that uh, in the community and perhaps within sections of my own political party. Uh, so I, you know, set about the dialogues internally that we needed to, to announce the decision. Um, actually, there wasn't within Labor um, a big thread of, you know, sort of the US bases style stuff. That, that wasn't an issue. There was attraction by some to going smaller scale, to proceeding more carefully, more cautiously with the pilots. And that was the main internal debate that I had to lead and win. Uh, in terms of those who had given confidence and supply and who were, uh, you know, working uh, in, an, in a sort of dialogue sense with the government, uh, the independents, Tony uh, Windsor and Rob Oakeshott, uh, they viewed these as uh, matters for executive government. And uh, whilst, of course, I discussed uh, these things with them because we kept each other informed, uh, it was, it, that was all fine. They're very sophisticated uh, people in terms of how they see the globe. Uh, the Greens uh, were obviously going to take a different view um, and I respected that and I think they respected that I needed to get on and do what I had to do as Prime Minister. So uh, there was, um, you know, that, but uh, there was never a moment or a suggestion from the Greens that the government couldn't uh, properly take this decision. It's just that they've got a different foreign policy outlook and they were going to continue to pursue that in the court of public opinion. Uh, so yes, you know, I did have to uh, uh, work, work it through. Um, we were joking before we came on air that uh, one of the things about uh, being Prime Minister, uh, John and I were joking, is you can always say, I've been through worse, you know, in terms of your contemporary lived experience, I've been through worse. Uh, and I did have some harder political debates within the government uh, and with those supporting the government than this question uh, during the life of the government I led. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Prime Minister. Last question to you both before handing back to Simon uh, to take questions um, from, from the viewership, over a thousand people, in fact, uh, watching this. Um, I'd be interested if you could both reflect on where, the, on where the alliance might go. What are the contemporary challenges and uh, where do you, where do you, where do you see it moving? 
Uh, are there areas that could be developed further or what? I'd be just interested in your open-ended thoughts about contemporary challenges and the future. If you could take about three minutes each to, uh, to consider that, and then uh, we'll hand it back to Simon. And Prime Minister Gillard, while you've got the floor, uh, why don't you kick off? Uh, certainly, and I'll uh, do, do my best to be as quick as possible, which probably won't do service to each of the issues. But uh, clearly, uh, there is a need for uh, deep reflection uh, by us, by the US and by many around the world, given the circumstances in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think um, that uh, is calling to uh, the government of Australia now and the government of the United States. So there is a lot to think through uh, about uh, what went right, what went wrong and what the uh, contemporary posture should be towards Afghanistan and how we hold faith with the people of Afghanistan uh, insofar as possible in this period. And obviously uh, there are a range of um, tools that we have in our hands from aid and development on the one hand, range through to sanctions on the other and many nuances uh, in between, and we need to work through that. Uh, pulling the lens back, uh, of course, the driving uh, shaper of this uh, period of, uh, you know, sort of geopolitical history is the uh, continued rise of China and the emergence of a bipolar uh, world, uh, and uh, that has uh, consequences in every direction. Uh, it has huge consequences for Australia, given where we are in the geography of the world, uh, and continuing to work that through uh, as Australia and in dialogue with the US and, of course, in dialogue with China uh, is going to be a huge shaper of the future. I do think in this moment of human history, uh, whilst we haven't worked uh, the alliance um, fundamentally around these kinds of questions in many ways. The challenge of climate change uh, is a challenge in every sense. It is also a security challenge uh, likely to lead to uh, uh, major and um, unregulated movement, movements of uh, people, uh, including in our region of the world. So collaboration and cooperation on that looms large. And given uh, the period we've continuing to live through, and I'm very aware that many of the people who are online are living in uh, stringent lockdowns as Australia still grapples uh, with COVID. Uh, what we need to do in terms of uh, health and future pandemic preparedness, uh, there are many lessons to learn from this period and they can only be learned by us working uh, together uh, with the US, but with the world generally. And all of that work needs to be done at a time when, uh, you know, multilateralism um, is uh, anemic, thin, and does need to be rebuilt around critical questions, uh, whether pandemic, climate change, economic collaboration, security collaboration, there is much to do in building the pattern of bonds and cooperations in this world. Thank you very much, Prime Minister Howard. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that the greatest foreign policy challenge that Australia has at the moment is China. And China is at once our greatest export destination, a country that played a very material role in Australia being able to effectively escape uh, the bullet when it 
came to the global financial crisis, but also a nation that uh, has become far more belligerent and aggressive internationally. I compare Xi Jinping with the two Chinese presidents that I dealt with, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, and they're a world away, as far as the outside world is concerned. Now, the American alliance is hugely important in that context, and the elephant in the room, if we're frank about it, is Taiwan. Now, what do I think will happen in Taiwan? Well, I don't know, but I would be very surprised if the Chinese launched any kind of full-scale attack on Taiwan because they would fear that there would be massive retaliation from the Americans and they would almost certainly come off second best. And that's really not part of the Xi Jinping plan for China's future. But... There will obviously be uh, increasing pressure in different ways put on Taiwan by the Chinese, and this is going to be a very, very difficult issue. And I think that the, the, the two guidelines Australia has got to follow is that we, uh, first of all, um, uh, can't uh, abandon our values, we can't abandon alliances or friends. And these, I think, misguided people who say at some point Australia has to make a choice between China and the United States are really having delusions. Um, Because in the end, uh, the thing that binds you more tightly to a nation or a group of nations is common values. And the values that we have in common with the United States and indeed other countries that have those values are far more important and enduring than anything else. But but I think think the other thing that we we have to bear that very much in mind The other thing we have to try and avoid uh, is being mesmerised by China. I've I've often thought that we forget that for all the uh, impressive nature of China's rise, there are two great problems that China faces. First of those is demography. She will grow old before she grows rich. Uh, You can talk about aggregate GDP, but if you actually talk about individuals, China is still quite a poor country, although a lot less poor than she was 20 years ago. So I think that's something to bear in mind. And China has made a terrible mess uh, of the demographic policy, I want to put it like that. 34 odd years ago, we had a a, a one-child policy. Uh, Then we had a two-child policy, which lasted for sort of about 10 minutes. And now we've got, in certain circumstances, a three-child policy. Well, it doesn't indicate to me that there's a lot of sort of skillful planning at, at the highest levels. The other theory I have, and probably most of the people listening to this would disagree or scratch their heads about this, is that I do think that um, eventually there is a denouement coming in China in relation to how they're governed. You've got now what by any fair measure, 400 million and rising middle-class Chinese, perhaps higher than that. And that's all happened fairly quickly. Now, more and more people will be born into relative affluence. And my view of human nature is that if you're born into relative comfort and affluence, you're not going to tolerate being told what to do. But if you transition from poverty to affluence in your lifetime, you are probably more likely to uh, at least uh, 
give a nod of gratitude to the government that was in charge during that transition. And I think um, it, it will become increasingly more difficult for uh, uh, the Chinese leadership. So adding all of that up, um, China remains uh, the huge challenge. And, uh, gee, we need to have, uh, as not only an alliance partner, and I really do welcome the development of the Quad, I think the addition of India to the trilateral security dialogue that I established with America and Japan is really very, very welcome. And it's a legitimate expression of democratic solidarity. It's not anti-Chinese, although it does have the impact of, uh, uh, of acting as some kind of containment, but it's, uh, it can't be labelled as that. So I think we, we need America. We need her understanding, we need her strength, but we also need her common democratic experience. And so I can see in that, in the context of undoubtedly the greatest challenge that uh, Australia has. And, and in dealing with China, we should never lose sight of two things, how valuable she is as, a, as an economic partner, as an export destination. Anybody who says, oh, don't worry about that, they are really, you know, they don't understand any of the recent history of Australia, and so we should understand that, but equally we have to understand that it's not an occasion for schoolboy type point scoring. We have to uh, understand that we have uh, uh, it's a delicate relationship. And there were periods when we could, when it was possible for Australia to say, I mean, I, I can remember vividly the that huge natural gas deal in the early 2000s, negotiated with the Northwest Shelf, it was very obvious to me that the Chinese wanted us to get the contract. Well, they went through the process of you know, calling for bids and all that. But, but we, we did have um, uh, something of a sweet spot relationship there for a period of years, and that changed. And I, I don't criticise any government that followed mine for that. I think there's been a remarkable consistency in the treatment of China by by Labor and coalition governments and have each over the years made contributions. And I, and, uh, I think the Morrison government is handling China in the right way. I think the legislation about uh, disclosure and the, the concern about infiltration, that's all justified. I think the call that the foreign minister made for an investigation into the source of the virus was very low key. I, I remember watching it on television when she said it and I, I couldn't understand how People got worked out, but it wasn't a belligerent statement. It was just a plain statement of the you know, obvious that there had to be an investigation. So my response to your question is very much in the context, not only of the enduring partnership between two great democracies, but very much in the context of this challenge that we have with China. And, and it, it's, it, it will tax the continue to tax the, uh, the current government and any government that follows it. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Simon, uh, over to you. Thanks, Dennis. Um, we're rapidly approaching the top of the hour, so I'm going to squeeze in um, one um, question um, from the audience. And um, it... It speaks to <laughs> earlier, I think it was Mr. Howard that said, um, you know, the Australia's relationship with the United States transcends the personalities of the day. But 
how about those personalities? And in particular, Mr. Howard, in your case, being in Washington, um, there for celebrating the 50th anniversary of ANZUS on the 10th of September, uh, 2001. Um, the, the, you've, you've spoken a few times now on the record about the, about the consequence of, of being there on the day. Um, the world saw, Australia certainly saw, the closeness of your relationship um, with President George W. Bush over time. And, and for Prime Minister Gillard, um, the evident warmth between yourself and, and Barack Obama and, and in the, our alliance at 70 book, uh, there's a wonderful moment where Barack Obama reveals, in fact, he is well and truly a left-hander as he, as he hand passes a, a footy to you across the Oval Office. Um, All American, recent American presidents have been left-handed. <laughs> there's a few of them are, left, are lefties. That's but, true. But, yeah. but, but I'm wondering, speak, hearing from you people directly, um, how that person, pr Prime Minister to President relationship, how important that is in, the, in pursuing Australia's national interests through, through the context of the alliance? Perhaps Thank Prime you. Minister Gillard first, yeah. Uh, sure. Look, I, I think uh, the, the better the personal relationship, in many ways, the easier the discussions go. But I wouldn't want to overput it. Obviously, uh, people have their, uh, you know, national interest, and there are many, many times where our national interest and the American interest are absolutely in lockstep. Uh, but there are times when there are differences. Uh, uh, John's talked, for example, about uh, the discussions he uh, had around the time uh, of East Timor and, and uh, what he needed to do there. So uh, strong personal relationships can't wish all of that away, but they can get you, I think, an extra margin, an extra little bit of latitude um, in, in what can be achieved. So uh, I do think think, um, you know, always uh, treating, uh, each treating their counterpart with uh, dignity and respect because of the office is fundamental. Uh, but if you can get that sort of extra um, X factor of uh, friendship and interconnection, I think it does help. Uh, Prime Minister Howard. Yeah, well, look, I'd, I'd, I'd endorse that. I mean, there was no doubt going back to the 60s the friendship between Harold Holt and Lyndon Johnson. It was very strong and it was something that, you know, that, that crossed uh, the party divide. I think the only time when there was a bit of stress at top level was for a brief period uh, when there was a lot of debate about the American bombing of North Vietnam and, and, and some of the attacks that were mounted on the Nixon administration by some of Whitman's ministers. Now that, that sort of settled down. But by and large, um, personal relations have been very good. And, and as I said earlier, uh, I was Prime Minister for four and a half years with Bill Clinton as President, and we, we had some differences, but I, I developed a very good friendship with him and, and, and retained it. So, and, of course, I unapologetically became and remain a, a good friend of George Bush, and uh, I think being there... Having spent so much time with him the day before, right. uh, it just cemented that relationship. And I think it added value. I mean, it helped with um, um, you know, the free trade negotiations. Uh, it helped enormously. Although, you know, he had to draw the line somewhere. He wasn't going to give me any concessions on sugar. Because <laughs> there, were, there were too many <laughs> Republicans from 
sugary parts of American, I think. <laughs> and I understood that. He did it in style, though. <laughs> he did. Hey, um, look, I will just also point out, um, I, and I didn't at, at the start, that um, Prime Minister Gillard joins us from London, where uh, it's early in the morning. Thank you for giving us uh, your time this morning, Prime Minister Gillard. Um, the, the other thing to note is that I'm at the University of Sydney and both Mr. Howard and Dennis Richardson are proud alumni of the University of Sydney, as are quite a few ambassadors uh, to Australian ambassadors to the United States. Um, and that's an important connection for the centre to stress. I can't let that go. And, and, and the last uh, remark from me is just to, again, we're going to tease in just a moment um, with, a, with a really, I think, nice video package, our Alliance at 70 volume. I do want to take the opportunity, a slide will go by acknowledging some of the financial supporters for this really considerable undertaking by the United States Study Center. Um, um, and, but I will single out by name, um, 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 Pratt uh, Industries, who are our presenting sponsor of the, uh, supporter rather, of the Alliance at 70 project. Um, US Study Center enjoys um, the support um, over, over some years now from the Australian uh, government's uh, Department of Defence, of course, News Corp Australia, uh, and in particular, the, the, the Australian uh, and Sky News. Uh, we have great relationships uh, with them and we're very thankful for their support of the Alliance at 70 project and, and Macquarie, um, Macquarie Group. Um, uh, we thank them uh, as uh, being platinum uh, supporters of the Alliance at 70 project. Um, but it is now 6.03, and in the interest of keeping the show moving along, um, it, it's my pleasure now uh, to hand over proceedings uh, to the Chairman of the Board of the United States Study Centre, Mr. Mark Bailey. But let me just close out by again thanking uh, Prime Minister Gillard uh, for joining us from London. Thank you so much, and, and Prime Minister Howard. This has been one, a, a remarkable conversation. It's, it's a shame it could only be an hour. Um, we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Over to you, Mark. Thank you, Simon. That's excellent work. Um, uh, again, I'd just like to encourage everyone to stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we have the very special event at the end of the webinar, which could not be a more appropriate symbolic commemoration and celebration of the 70th anniversary of our alliance with the United States. On behalf of the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, I want to thank those who have made tonight's event possible. I acknowledge that many viewing tonight are under lockdown conditions and want to extend our thoughts and best wishes to you during this time of stress. We have been exceptionally privileged to have heard from former Prime Ministers Howard and Gillard and former Ambassador Richardson. Collectively, they have provided over a century of Australian public service and been involved in the mature stewardship and relationship with the US for over two thirds of the duration of the ANZUS Treaty. As a consequence, the insights they have been able to share about the history, current importance and future of the Alliance are both highly valuable and without parallel. We deeply appreciate you giving us your time this evening. In addition, I want to acknowledge and sincerely thank those organisations and people who have contributed to ensuring such a successful event. These include from the Office of the Prime Minister, Euron Finkelstein, Paul Ritchie, Jack Hampton, from the New South Wales Premier's Office and Department of Premier and Cabinet, Amine Nalbandian, Johnny Heron, and Alastair Lyle. Also the team at the Electric Canvas. Lastly, and by no means least, the exceptional team at the United States Study Centre, working under Simon's direction, 
who have gone above and beyond in producing such a high quality event, including Edward Parmesano, Mari Koch, Janine Pinto, Susan Beale, Michael Bodie, and Bruce Wolpe. Thank you all for your tireless efforts in bringing this complex event from concept to reality in such a short time frame. The board of the US Study Center has provided unequivocal support for the project and provided practical assistance in a variety of ways. Thank you to my fellow directors. I would also like to add my thanks to the previously highlighted supporters of the Center's Alliance 70 project. Turning to the remaining segments of the CENI's program, next there will be a short preview of the Alliance at 70, the special commemorative publication of the Centre. Immediately following that preview, John Olson, Chairman of the American Australian Association and the Perth US Asia Centre, our sister centre based in Western Australia, will provide some remarks and introduce a message from Prime Minister Scott Morrison. John, the AAA, together with the great work of Lily Devchik, have provided tremendous assistance and guidance in bringing this event together. Thank you, John. Your efforts are very much appreciated. This will be followed by a video message from the Federal Leader of the Opposition, Anthony Albanese. Our final speaker this evening is New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian, who is uniquely placed to introduce the special event. After the launch of the special event, the evening will conclude at around 6.30pm. Federal and state governments provide the cornerstone funding of our work and have done so from our inception. We appreciate this as we do the bipartisan support for the centre. Finally, I would just like to make some comments about why the US Study Centre exists. The continued and ever increasing interest in the US and its global influence is proof that the United States is the most admired, criticised and consequential country in the world. I also believe that it is the most misunderstood and caricatured nation and society. When every four years we watch the US presidential election results roll in, Australians are reminded that the United States is far more than the great cities on the east and west coasts. It is a federal republic of 50 states, one capital district, with sovereignty over 14 territories. More than this is a country of enormous complexity and fluidity. The United States is always restless. Every decade seems to bring turmoil and division. But with that comes social and economic reinvention, which occurs more rapidly and dramatically in the United States than any other country in the world. This creates anxiety, but is also the driving force behind its progress and advancement. The great social and civil rights movements tend to have had their origins in the United States. Its technological and innovative capacities remain unmatched. To offer just one economic statistic, during the decade of the 2010s, the United States has increased its economic size in GDP terms by an amount five times that of the Australian economy. It grows on average by the size of an Australian economy every two years. This occurred despite yet another traumatic decade. And as we have seen over the past 18 months, and even in recent days, this stress and uncertainty has continued. The point is that neither its admirers nor its critics can ever really claim to fully understand or pin down the United States. Regardless, this is a period of immense and restless energy in the United States and reassessment of how it will lead and where it needs to be. This is not occurring in isolation. The United States, Australia and the world are responding to significantly increased geostrategic competition from nations who do not respect the rules-based international order, the system which has underpinned much of our collective peace and prosperity. This has greatly contributed to global economics and trade increasingly coming under the influence of geopolitics. Technology is being misused for human suppression and not for liberation and enlightenment. Like all nations, the United States is scrambling to adjust. How it does that is uniquely important to Australia and the world. The US Studies Centre's mission is to offer insightful, original and measured analysis 
of the United States and where it is heading, its society, its economy, its place in the world, and the impact of these for Australia and the world. We do not, we do not th this for mere academic interest. Our objective is to ensure our research and activities are as useful and as relevant as they can be. This is because the United States remains the indispensable and enduring superpower for Australia and the region. Without it, there is no strategic, economic or diplomatic balance in our region. Nevertheless, we do not boost America for sentimental or nostalgic reasons, and neither do we pick at the scabs of American failures or mistakes for sport. We are not sentimental or nostalgic about the alliance, and we understand it as a living document relationship. We unashamedly champion the importance of the alliance, and our mission is to suggest ways to ensure the relationship evolves, continues to strengthen, and can adapt to the needs and challenges of our time. We study the United States not because we must and we have to. We study it because we can and we want to. Thank you and please enjoy the remainder of the evening. It is indisputable fact that the early years uh, of this century was defined by the terrorist attacks on the United States. As expected in an open democratic society, the conversation turned to America and its place in the world and the future of the Alliance. Following the Second World War, during which America came to the defense of Australia, the American-Australian Association was established in New York in 1948. The AAA, a leading privately funded organization devoted to advancing understanding and cooperation between our two countries. We were concerned at the lack of balance, lack of factual, uh, non-emotional debate that emerged during the period prior to the establishment of the United States Study Center. And because we wanted understanding cooperation between our two countries to be advanced, the AAA sought and obtained the Australian government, Howard government support, to establish the United States Study Center based at Sydney University, which has become a primary source of balanced information, expert views on US domestic developments, its foreign policy, an evolving mission of the Alliance. ANSYS has a broader purpose than the national interests of the two countries, with fast economic growth and military spending in the Indo-Pacific. And it's in that context, American leadership has become more indispensable and is increasingly reliant on allies such as Australia. Therefore, AAA was again instrumental in initiating the establishment of the Perth US Asia Centre with the support of the Gillard government at the University of Western Australia to provide expert opinion and think tank attributes on strategic and economic issues between countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Tonight's seminar is of international relationships and dialogue and Prime Minister Scott Morrison's advocacy for rule-based order that supports open market economies essential for domestic, regional and global opportunities is important. His personal attendance and participation in multilateral fora, such as the Quad, G7+, Plus, East Asia Summit and OECD, is crucial for free and open Indo-Pacific. Further, advocacy on a global style stage elevates Australia's standing, as did both Prime Minister Howard and Gillard. 
Relationships in the region are important and remain crucial for our security. Debt diplomacy is a regional risk. The evolving alliance is a vehicle is important to manage these risks. It's in that context, on behalf of the centre, it's my pleasure to introduce the remarks from Prime Minister Scott Morrison. It is great to be with my friends at the US Study Centre as we celebrate the 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Alliance. 70 years ago today, after some amazing work by Sir Percy Spender, in the harbour city of San Francisco, with the Golden Gate before them and the Blue Pacific beyond, an earlier generation of Australians and Americans pledged themselves to one another. Sir Robert Menzies, our Prime Minister at the time, said, our peoples are warmed by the same inner fires. It is true to this day. And so it seems appropriate, I think, that we acknowledge this anniversary in the great harbour city, my home city of Sydney, the home of Fleet Based East, our own great bridge, of course, the Sydney Opera House, that will light up honouring that wonderful friendship between our two peoples. And I thank Premier Berejiklian and the US Study Centre and the Australian American Federation for making this possible. The Alliance is the bedrock of Australia's security, and it has been that way under 14 presidents and 14 prime ministers. I understand that tonight we are being joined by the Honourable John Howard and the Honourable Julia Gillard. They know, as any Prime Minister does, and they can testify that the Alliance is part of a shared national endeavour essential to our interests and security, and I want to acknowledge their great contribution to that Alliance during their Prime Ministerships. President Johnson once said that Australia and the United States would stand together in sunshine and in sorrow. And we've seen that through our long friendship. For more than a century, we've fought and stood side by side in every major conflict, from the Western Front to the Middle East, from the waters of the Coral Sea to the snows of Korea. We've seen it very recently in the tragic events in Kabul. And I want to honour again the 13 American soldiers killed last week and our Afghan friends and mourn their terrible loss. This was an evil attack on the innocent and the brave. Troops murdered as they provided a path, protected a path to freedom for so many others. On this occasion, we honour all who have served under our flags and call to mind those who especially made the ultimate sacrifice under those flags. 20 years ago this month, after the events of 9-11, Prime Minister John Howard invoked the ANZUS Treaty for the first and only time, declaring, if our debt to the United States in the darkest days of World War II means anything, if the comradeship, the friendship and the common bonds of democracy and a belief in liberty and fraternity and justice mean anything, it means that the ANZUS Treaty now applies. Well said, John. 20 years on, our common values are undimmed. In a time of great strategic uncertainty, our alliance is stronger and more valuable than ever. The global COVID-19 pandemic continues to rage with tragic consequences for millions. At the same time, we confront our most challenging strategic environment in our region in decades. The alliance is a choice we make 
about how best to pursue our security interests. And in a world after a pandemic, we seek an Indo-Pacific together that's free of coercion, that's open, that's stable, that's secure and prosperous, not just for ourselves, but our friends and our neighbours who also value their sovereignty and their freedom. It's true, friends, we have many challenges ahead together. But on this anniversary, let us pause. But also let us mark and celebrate what we've achieved. Let us importantly honour the sacrifices that so many have made and that we have shared. And let us rededicate ourselves to being that shining city on a hill that we both seek. It is a great privilege to join in marking this 70th anniversary. We may look to the United States, but we never leave it to the United States. And that's what ANZUS is all about. Sharing that burden together, sharing that vision together, sharing that hope and support for a world that favours freedom. Thank you to our great friends in the United States. We continue the journey together and good night. Can I begin by acknowledging the presence today of former Prime Ministers John Howard and Julia Gillard and pay tribute to their support for strengthening the Alliance. The 70th anniversary of the ANZUS Treaty is a great opportunity to commemorate our shared history. More importantly, it is a chance to look forward to how our relationship will serve our respective futures in an increasingly challenging world. It comes as attention is focused on what conclusions can be drawn from the 20-year war in Afghanistan. Such reflection is natural, but it is important to recognise that the Australia-US relationship and the ANZUS Treaty at its centre has seen incredible change and endured. More immediately, without our American allies' efforts to evacuate thousands of Australians and visa holders in the past weeks would have just been wishful thinking. US leadership in Kabul came at a great cost. 13 service men and women lost their lives as they sought to help others. We mourn alongside our US friends. ANZUS began during the emergence of the Cold War. Geopolitical imperatives have not gone away, but the forms of cooperation underpinning our response to them have evolved. During this event, you have undoubtedly already heard of the achievements of previous governments in developing that cooperation. The former Labor government expanded and modernised existing facilities. We secured the rotation of US Marines, greater use of Australian airfields in our north and west, and the promise of increased US Navy use of our Indian Ocean naval base. A further manifestation of how our alliance relationship needs to keep evolving is climate change. We know the risks that climate bears on our security. We have vividly seen its impact on ADF operations already, whether responding to the 2019-20 bushfire crisis or humanitarian assistance missions such as Operation Fiji Assist. Australia's own action on climate change will therefore shape the capacity of our interests to prosper in partnership with our neighbours and our US ally. Upon coming to office, I will make comprehensive US-Australia cooperation on climate change a hallmark 
of the alliance going forward. The US remains our key capital investor and at the foundation of our shared economic prosperity is the global rules-based order. Labor welcomes the return of American leadership in that order under President Biden. The US and Australia have worked closely as allies in building and strengthening these rules of the road. The challenges we face demand we be even more ambitious about what we do together and with our mutual friends across the region. Recent visits by Vice President Harris and Defence Secretary Austin to Southeast Asia are welcome first moves in a US step up in this strategically important region. We hope to see this grow rapidly. We have an opportunity and the responsibility to work closely with the new administration as it develops its strategy towards the Indo-Pacific. Australia's partnerships and our leadership in the region is a value add-in that we bring to the Alliance. Our Alliance has served us well for 70 years. It's an Alliance based upon our shared values and our shared way in which we see the world. And I look forward to seeing it strengthened in the years ahead. 70 years ago today, on the 1st of September 1951, the ANZUS Treaty was signed in San Francisco to signify an alliance between nations based on a set of core and common values. This was the first major international treaty Australia entered, independent of the British government, a shared pledge to ensure peace and stability in the Pacific region. ANZUS remains at the heart of one of Australia's most important and vibrant bilateral relationships. It is a formal expression of a strong working alliance based on shared values, a close congruence of strategic interests and a history of cooperation. Australia is also, also home to a proud diaspora of Americans who work to further strengthen the relationship between our two great nations. We all have much to celebrate on this important anniversary. Our deep friendship with the people of the United States is based on a long and shared history and a reinforcement of the values that unite Australians and Americans, values of democracy, freedom and the rule of law, and a belief in free enterprise, entrepreneurship and innovation. It gives me great pleasure today to ensure the lighting of the sales of the Sydney Opera House to mark this significant milestone in our enduring ANZUS Alliance. We look forward to the continued growth of the ANZUS relationship and the continued prosperity of the wider Pacific region.